CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. Okay, well, welcome back. Uh, my name is Anil Kapoor, and I'm uh, filling in for Dr. Alan So, who is unable to make it tonight. It gives me a great pleasure to uh, introduce a bladder uh, cancer session, highlights from GUASCO 2022. And our panel is uh, Dr. Namira Ali Mohammed, medical oncologist at the Tom Baker Cancer Center, University of Calgary. Thank you, Namira, for joining us. Dr. Wes Kasouf, a professor and associate chair, Department of Surgery, McGill University. And Dr. Alejandro, Alejandro Berlin, radiation oncologist, uh, medical director, sorry, move my screen here, medical director, cancer digital intelligence. So welcome, Dr. Berlin, uh, to our panel tonight. We're going to start off with uh, Namira. Namira, uh, looking forward to your presentation on bladder cancer. Thanks for joining us. These are my disclosures. Thank you for having me today to talk about the metastatic urothelial carcinoma updates from ASCO-GU. Um, I'll preface this by saying, you know, we've set the bar high in the last few years and we've seen some major advancements in the treatment of patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma. I will touch today on some antibody drug conjugate data that we've seen as well as targeted therapies. Um, and most of the practice changing updates in bladder cancer are in earlier stages of disease. Here's our current treatment algorithm. So for most of us in Canada, for patients who are eligible for platinum-based chemotherapy, we treat them with cisplatinum or carboplatinum-based chemotherapy in the first-line metastatic setting with four to six cycles of treatment. If they have a response or stable disease, we then have access to maintenance of Alimab based on the Javelin data, which showed a significant improvement in overall survival. Currently, this is available via special access program. If patients have progression on or after platinum-based chemotherapy, the standard of care is typically pembrolizumab, again, based on phase three data. Um, and fortimabvidotin is usually our post-chemotherapy, post-IO option. Again, that's available by, by special access program. That's an antibody drug conjugate, which has demonstrated an improvement in overall survival in the third line setting. We also have access to erdofitinib for patients with known FGFR mutations and fusions, with the caveat that testing for genomic alterations is limited. It's not publicly funded in most provinces and it's not available. And in later lines of treatment, some of us continue to use taxane-based chemotherapy for patients um, who are eligible for, for all of these lines of treatment. An unmet need continues to be here in Canada in the platinum ineligible patient population. So patients who are not well enough for cisplatinum or carboplatinum, we do not have routine access or funded access to novel therapies in the setting and some patients will get best supportive care alone. The first antibody drug conjugate I wanted to talk about is sasituzumab govotecam, I'll call it SG. This is a drug which has been approved in metastatic triple negative breast cancer in the third line setting and beyond. This is an antibody drug conjugate. It is directed towards trope two, which is an epithelial antigen expressed in many solid tumors. The payload here is SN38, which is the active metabolite in a renotecan and is more potent than that. This gives a high drug to antibody ratio. The trophy one study in urothelial carcinoma, it was a multi-cohort phase two study. We've previously seen data from cohort one, which is SG in the third line setting and a single agent 
um, cohort. The response rate in that setting was 27%, and 77% of patients had a decrease in measurable disease, and this is what led to accelerated FDA approval for this antibody drug conjugate. What was presented here at GU ASCO this year, abstract 434 by Dr. Grivas, was cohort 3, which is sasituzumab govotecan in combination with pembrolizumab in the second-line setting, so in patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma who progressed after platinum-based regimens. The trial design, so in this cohort, 61 patients were enrolled, patients were checkpoint immunotherapy naive and had prior chemotherapy, sasituzumab is given 10 milligrams per kilogram day one and day eight every 21 days, and pembrolizumab is given once every 21 days. Treatment was continued until toxicity or disease progression. The primary endpoint was response rate. You can see here baseline characteristics, the median age was about 67 and pretty similar to what we see in most of our patient populations in the second line setting. The objective response rate noted here was 34%. 63% of patients had tumor shrinkage, and this was with a median follow-up of 5.8 months. The median time to response was early at two months, and the median duration of response was not yet reached. Median progression-free survival was 5.5 months. The clinical benefit rate with this agent in the second line, with these agents in the second line setting was 61%. Treatment-related adverse events were noted in close to grade three to four were noted in close to 60% of patients, and about 40% of patients had a dose reduction in SG during this treatment period. There were no treatment-related deaths, and another, you know, about 25% of patients, so a quarter of patients received steroids for immune-related adverse events and 10% for oral steroids. Notably in the study, we see that sasituzumab govotecan can lead to significant levels of neutropenia, and a third of patients on the study received GCSF, and that's not common here in Canada in metastatic disease. So the authors concluded that in this platinum refractory population, this was a phase two study, the combination of this novel antibody drug conjugate, sasituzumab govotecan, plus pembrolizumab met its primary endpoint and demonstrated a response rate of 34%, clinical benefit rate of 61%, and a median progression-free survival of 5.5 months. If we take a step back and look at how does this compare, if we look at another antibody drug conjugate, EV, plus pembrolizumab, in the first-line setting in a phase 1b and 2 study, the response rate was close to 73%, with ongoing phase 3 work pending. The authors concluded that the safety profile was manageable. I think in our context, um, this supports the notion that this is a novel antibody drug conjugate with, with promising activity and further study is warranted. Data from other cohorts of this study is pending. So there are arms looking at SG in combination with cisplatinum in the first line setting. There's another arm looking at SG plus cisplatinum plus abelumab. The TROPIC-04 study is another study with this compound, and that's a phase three third-line study. So all of that data, I think, will maybe practice changing, but currently this is practice informing and exciting. What was also exciting is that activity was noted in patients who had progressed on infortimab vedotin, suggesting that resistant to, resistance to one antibody drug conjugate doesn't necessarily mean resistance to another. I think biomarker data and long-term follow-up is pending. Another antibody drug conjugate um, that 
we might hear about in the news or in, for those of us who treat breast cancer is trastuzumab Derex TCAN. Trastuzumab Derex TCAN is a novel antibody drug conjugate directed against HER2. We know that some patients with urothelial carcinoma will express HER2 and will highly express it. In this study, this was abstract 438 in the DS8201AU105 study in the urothelial carcinoma cohort, in patients who had high HER2 expression, this was cohort three, the response rate with trastuzumab, steric TCAN, and nivolumab, so another antibody drug conjugate plus immunotherapy, we saw a response rate post-platinum chemotherapy of 37%. The spider plot here is interesting, showing the change in tumor size over time. The median duration of response was 13.1 months. AEs with this combination were nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and fatigue. Notably in that study, more patients had treatment-related adverse events that led to discontinuation, and pneumonitis was something significant and to monitor. Ongoing studies are looking at this agent in HER2 overexpressing urothelial carcinoma, and I think that's something we'll hear more about in the future in this disease site. I wanted to spend a few minutes to talk about targeted therapy as well. And we've already talked a lot about DNA damage repair deficiency. And if we look at it in urothelial carcinoma, about 25% of patients can exhibit a DNA repair deficiency phenotype. To date, no DRD targeted agents have been approved for treatment in this disease site. And again, going back to our current treatment algorithm, I just wanna highlight this to show you where these studies land. The first study is looking at maintenance recaparib, and this study was designed pre-Javelin data, so pre-maintenance of Alimab. This was a randomized, double-blind, biomarker-selected phase two study of maintenance PARP inhibition following chemotherapy for metastatic urethelial carcinoma. This was the final analysis of the Atlantis recaparib arm. So the Atlantis study enrolled patients with stage four urothelial carcinoma who had received first-line chemotherapy, who had stable disease or response and had biomarker pre-screening based on the biomarker positivity. They were enrolled on one of these different arms. The data that was presented here by Dr. Crabb was the recaparib arm. Recaparib is an oral PARP inhibitor. So the patients were included if they were DRD biomarker positive. And that was defined as having one or more of the following either a 10% or more genome-wide loss of heterozygosity, a somatic alteration in any of these listed genes here, or a known germline BRCA1 or 2 mutation. Testing was done by Foundation One. Patients had an ECOG performance status of zero to two. They were randomized to receive recaparib or placebo, and the primary endpoint here was progression-free survival. The primary point, as you can see here, median progression-free survival in the recaparib arm was 35.3 weeks compared to 15.1 weeks in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.53, a trend to benefit. Overall survival, the median overall survival was not yet reached in the recaparib arm and in the placebo arm was 72.3 weeks. Again, um, early data for overall survival. Safety with rucaparib, um, for those of us who use these drugs in other disease sites, nothing unexpected with fatigue, nausea, rash, anorexia being common side effects with oral PARP inhibitors. No treatment-related deaths occurred in this study. The authors concluded that in this phase two trial, in patients with a DRD biomarker who had not progressed after platinum-based chemotherapy, 
Maintenance rucaparib showed a trend towards improvement in progression-free survival, and rucaparib had a tolerable safety profile. And I think this highlights that further investigation is warranted with these agents in biomarker-selected populations. Where does that fit into our context? You know, the Javelin study demonstrated an improvement in overall survival, significant improvement in overall survival with maintenance immunotherapy with map, and that is our current standard of care. Going back to our treatment algorithm, you know, one unmet need is this area of patients who are platinum ineligible. So who come to our door, who are not cis-platinum or, or, or carboplatinum candidates. The BIU study was a phase two randomized study looking at this patient population and looking at the combination of durvalumab immunotherapy in combination with olaparib for the first line treatment of platinum ineligible patients. This was presented by Dr. Rosenberg. So the key inclusion criteria to be deemed ineligible for platinum-based chemotherapy um, per investigator was the carboplatinum-based definition and meeting one of the typical cisplatinum-based ineligibility criteria. Patients were enrolled with an ECOG performance status of zero to two, and the number enrolled was 150 patients. Patients were randomized to receive durvalumab plus olaparib compared to durvalumab plus placebo. While this was an unselected in terms of biomarker population, stratification was done by HRR status. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. I'll quickly show you the results here because I'm almost out of time. You can see here that about 20% of patients were HRR mutated in this study. The most common genes, um, the most common mutations were identified in ATM and BRCA2. You can see here in the ITT population, the combination of olaparib and durvalumab did not improve progression-free survival, but in the HRR mutated subgroup, there was a suggested benefit here. This was a pre-specified secondary analysis. Um, similarly, similarly, overall survival, there was no difference in the ITT population, but you can see here the purple and blue lines suggest that perhaps patients with HRR mutations do worse overall. So the authors concluded that in patients who um, are platinum ineligible, durvalumab plus olaparib did not improve overall survival or progression-free survival in the ITT population. However, in pre-planned analyses, patients with HRR mutations had improvements in progression-free survival. And these patients seem to have a poor prognosis. I think this study is not practice changing, but it, it demonstrates that we need to do more work in this patient population, there's a huge unmet need here. And maybe this has set a, set a benchmark for progression-free survival and overall survival in this patient population. And I think both of these studies, the Atlantis and Bayou studies, support genomic testing um, in our patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Thank you. Thanks, Tamira. That was uh, quite a tour de force, well done. Um, we'll move on to Dr. Wes Kasouf who, uh, as we mentioned before, is out of McGill. Thanks, Wes, for presenting. Thank you, Anil. So here are my disclosures. I'm going to highlight some of the stuff that uh, that's basically in the non-metastatic setting that's uh, non-radiation related, as Ali will uh, discuss the radiation studies. So the first study is uh, basically on BCG unresponsive disease presented by Sam Chang. And this is a phase two, three clinical trial looking at the interleukin-15 super agonist. In this study, they rationalized the approach of the combination in the sense that BCG ends up priming the innate immune system 
And when you add the interleukin-15 superagonist, what it does is enables the innate system to mount a more robust response and prolonged response. So thus the natural killer and T cell killing is much more stronger uh, when this is done in combination. So this is a, this trial is basically a similar design to other trials that have read out in the space, including the PEMBRO trial, which is now FDA and Health Canada approved in the BCG unresponsive state. And essentially, uh, they had the single arm study, two cohorts. Cohort A is a carcinoma in situ patient population. Cohort B is a pure a papillary patient population. And they followed the, uh, the, the BCG unresponsive defini definition as mandated by the FDA. And in this trial, they gave essentially a combination therapy and induction course followed by maintenance up to three years. The difference that they had for this trial compared to some of the other ones is they allowed for a reinduction if someone relapsed. So they gave that one option before deeming the patient failing the trial. So these are the demographics. Just one thing to highlight is uh, indeed this cohort were heavily treated with BCG. The median number of uh, uh, treatments of BCG was uh, 12 in uh, both cohorts. And when you look at the complete response and they assess complete response at any time, particularly in the first year, it's 71%. And when you evaluate uh, the duration of complete response, basically at one year, 62%, at two years, it's 52%, which is pretty good compared to the other agents out there. Now, this is the Kaplan-Meier and you, you want to make sure that basically this is not on the overall population. For some reason, many of those trials show it only on those who respond. So these, this is basically patients who respond. So that 71% who had a complete response. The 12-month uh, duration, 62%, 24 months, 52%. Now, if you do the calculation on the overall patient population, the 12-month duration on the overall patient population is actually 44%, 24 months is 37%. You put this in perspective to the only FDA-approved drug, which is Pembro, Pembro at 12 months was 19%. So it appears that this kind of cocktail seems to have more promising results. The only difference you have to keep in mind is they allowed for reinduction and allowed for a failure to happen. So you wonder if that happens with the other trials, where the numbers would be. So for disease-free survival, so this is cohort B in the papillary state. Again, the results seem good. 12 months, disease-free rate, 57%. Two-year, disease-free rate is 48%. When you're looking at toxicity, uh, none of the patients had systemic effects of the interleukin-15 uh, uh, agent. If you look at grade four and five toxicity, 0%. Uh, there was some grade three, but not that much. So quite well-tolerated uh, cocktail intravesically. So this is currently actually under FDA review, and we'll see what happens to it in the, ne in the next couple of months. The next trial is uh, evaluating uh, the role of infortumab uh, vedotin in the um, muscle and vasobladder bladder cancer who are cisplatinum ineligible. So this is basically a cohort of a several arm trial that was reported uh, uh, in GUASCO. And the rationale is a lot of those patients are cisplatinum ineligible, approximately 50%, and 
we do not have any effective uh, neoadjuvant uh, uh, chemotherapy in that space uh, right now. And then the rationale of infortumab vedotin is basically stemming from its activity in the second line metastatic space. And the idea is moving it earlier may potentially bank on the optimization of complete response and survival in patients who can't get cisplatin-based chemo. So this is a cohort H, uh, which is basically muscle invasive bladder cancer that are cisplatin ineligible. They get three cycles of, of infortunate vedotin and then a radical cystectomy. The primary endpoint was complete response. This is the patient demographics. Essentially, the the age is actually you know the median age is seventy five years. So they're not they're not a, the the very young patient population. It's basically where the bladder the typical bladder cancer patient population, ninety percent are males. So when you look at what made them cisplatin ineligible, uh, if you look at the table here, the majority is due to creatinine clearance in this uh, in this study. Out of the patients who received the treatment, so it's a small cohort, 22 patients. So the majority end up getting the full three cycles. 86% uh, got the full three cycles. And if you look at the pathological complete response, it's 36%. And the pathological downstaging, so having non-muscle invasive uh, disease at final pathology is 50%. Again, showing uh, good activity for this agent in the, in the new adjuvant space. Safety profile, 18% uh, had grade three uh, or four AV-related toxicities. And these toxicities are pretty much in line to what, uh, what AV shown in other settings. One thing they glanced over is the three, three patients died uh, in the study. Um, you wonder what, the, you know, it'd be nice to kind of know a bit more information and a bit more robustness with larger numbers because three out of 22 is higher than it's expected for uh, a cystectomy uh, mortality. So the author summarized basically the, uh, the activity you see is promising, the CRs of 36% uh, in this uh, group, and the toxicity is in line with what they've observed in other trials. And basically it supports the ongoing phase two and phase three trials looking at infortunumab plus or minus PEMRO in the new agile space. The third uh, study I want to just highlight quickly is uh, this is a this is the Vesper trial. So the Vesper trial was reported last year. Uh, it's essentially a trial that evaluated dense dose MVAC compared to gemcitabine platinum in the perioperative space uh, in patients treated with radical stectomy. And in that trial, the report last year basically showed that the dense dose MVAC had the higher complete responses and seems to be more effective in the neoadjuvant space. Now, this is a poster looking at a subset analysis, evaluating histological subtypes uh, and response to treatment. And the take-home message is if you look at that trial and when they evaluate histological subtypes, a lot of us, you know, there's kind of some, some kind of inconsistent results with the, the efficacy of neoadjuvant chemotherapy with the micropapillary, with the squamous differentiation, et cetera. In this study, when they looked at the subset analysis, they found that the complete response and the progression-free survival is similar regardless of having a variant histology along with the, um, uh, along with the, um, the urethral carcinoma. 
The only difference is they found that patients with nested variants did not do so well and less pathological response. Lastly, this is the mitogel uh, data. If you remember, this was reported and FDA approved back in 2020, evaluating mitogel, which basically is a solid, it's a solidified version of mitomycin that gets injected in the upper tract and dissolves slowly with urine. And showed that trial showed a 59% complete response and durable 80% at one year. The only thing that's new that uh, I thought is interesting is we always talked about the structure rate of this trial and the author, Serena Matin, in that, um, in that uh, session uh, reported that the structure rate in that trial is 30 to 40%. So just something to kind of keep in, that, in the back of your mind if this drug ever gets approved here. <clears throat> Lastly, there was a neoadjuvant trial in the upper tract disease reported uh, from Wesley's Yip and MSK, evaluating gemcitabine platinum uh, in upper tract disease, uh, 57 patients. A um, couple of things that they've noticed is that 90% of the patients were able to tolerate uh, three to four cycles without any issues. The complete response in the upper tract disease is 19%. Um, and if you look at the uh, downstaging to a non-muscle invasive upper tract, it's approximately 63% in that trial. So uh, supporting the, 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 um, the advocacy for neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy for upper tract disease, especially in those, uh, in those uh, patients who may, may, may end up being cisplatin ineligible after removing the renal unit. And that's it for my part. Very nice, Dr. Kasu. Thank you much for that summary. I guess uh, we'll have some questions at the end, but uh, what are your thoughts about bringing the mitogel um, to Canada? What's the progress on that? I think they keep talking about that for <laughs> a number of years now. Is there any progress on bringing that to, to Canada? They're, they're still talking about it. I haven't heard anything new development on that. They're interested in it, but... Um... Don't know when. Gotcha. Thank you. All right, uh, Dr. Alejandro Berlin, thank you so much for presenting today out of uh, UHN. Look forward to your presentation. So thanks again for the invitation. I'll try to keep it brief. I don't have any relevant disclosure. And the main objectives are to summarize um, the state around bladder preservation reflected in some of the presentations and hopefully foster adoption because it's still very low for something that I think is a, is a good option for selected patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. So this was a very good presentation around different topics, a little bit of review of uh, things and also presentation of phase one data. So I'm gonna go through that one, but the trial they did fundamentally, they had two groups, one that underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy, followed by MRI, cystoscopy, biopsy, and then proceed with radical cystectomy or radical radiotherapy, a dealer's choice, and the other arm would go uh, into direct uh, radical radiotherapy and then have an MRI during follow-up and cystoscopy and biopsy if any suspicious lesions were seen. Uh, just uh, the, the overarching finding is that the ADC maps shift to the right. So what this means, like ADC on diffuse weighting imaging, DWI, essentially uh, translates how molecules of water can diffuse in, in a specific voxel or area of interest. 
if the if the area is packed with tumor cells, it will pose a, a restriction to the diffusion of water. But if there is a tumor response, then there is more free space, as you can see in the box at the bottom uh, left. Hence, the AVC will increase, and that's essentially what you're seeing in the histograms. One histogram is shifting to the right, and the AVCs are flattening out because it's it's more similar to just free water, which is the majority of our body. So. Um, the the interesting thing here is if you split by responders and non-responders in both cohorts, the surgical one and the radiotherapy one, those uh, that had response had, tend to have a higher ADC and there for higher diffusion of water towards the end of the of the chemotherapy or the treatment during follow-up in the radiotherapy cohort. Uh, the only caveat here to take with a grain of salt is that its sensitivity still has some room to improve. Therefore, the negative predictive value is still suboptimal in the 50-60% range, meaning that absence of ADC improvement doesn't uh, fully consistently uh, highlight absence of tumor response. So it's good when it's there, but if it's not there, it's not catastrophic. But uh, I think it's on the safe uh, side of uh, failure, if you so wish because it's still not good enough to replace the radical treatments. The other thing that is very interesting, this group uh, published and now they updated a bit the summary of the phase one study that explored um, dose escalation and adaptation, meaning that because the bladder may change its feeling and its shape during the course of radiotherapy, um, they have different plans to adapt to the shape of the day. And also at the same time, they had a study of uh, dose escalation up to 70 gray with hyperfractionation. The messaging here is that the rates of toxicity of uh, grade three and four are fairly low and comparable with other series. So perhaps there's room to increase the dose when you're doing this adaptation to, to the shape of the day. And if you mix the two concepts that I gave together, and this is just a simulation study, you can imagine now you can even adaptate the dose, not only to the volume and the changes on shape, but also to the changes on structure or areas that are more packed with tumor cells. And if you conform to that area and give higher dose to that area, you can uh, reduce the overall volume exposed to higher doses of radiotherapy and also the surrounding normal tissues to the doses of radiotherapy, which I think is where the future um, is heading pretty fastly. So some of the highlights in that session was also a multi-institutional study from our team here and joint effort with the Mass General and the University of Southern California. This is fundamentally uh, um, an up update of the initial publication a few years back by Girish Kulkarni and Alex Lora leading it. Uh, with 50 patients matched surgery and radiotherapy. This is now 282 patients matched to 800, 834 patients on the radical cystectomy. I don't want to suggest that the treatments with trimodal therapy are better than radical cystectomy, but at least they seem very comparable in terms of survival probabilities at five years and, and also overall survival. There was a better overall survival on trimodal therapy, but I, I I would suggest that that's probably because of patient selection that sometimes uh, we're less prone to have, let's say, a heroic measure or have a very radical approach in patients that have a lot of comorbidities or, or a tumor that it's fairly advanced or multifocal or with very aggressive features. 
um, in the rate of salvage surgery comparable to other experiences in the order of 10 to 20%, depending when you measure, and also non-invasive recurrences in about a fifth of patients that were managed conservatively. So the conclusions in the absence of RCT that this is a good treatment strategy for select patients seem equivalent to have equivalent oncologic outcomes and should be offered to every patient who meets the selection criteria. And we can discuss that on the Q&A uh, as, an, as an effective alternative. And obviously there's limitations, even the best propensity score matching cannot replace an RCT because there's still room for confounders. Uh, this is another very interesting uh, study on the same vein in terms of a selection bias and impact on outcomes because they went back and reviewed an over 2,000 series of patients on the veterans uh, uh, undergoing um, um, management for muscle invasive cancer in the network of Duke and UC San Diego. And they catalog uh, between patients that underwent radical cystectomy without neoadjuvant chemotherapy as a sign of potential more frail uh, patients, both that received the combo therapy, both were trimodal therapy, but were deemed eligible for radical cystectomy, but been, uh, refused or preferred trimodal therapy, and those that were trimodal therapy managed because they were ineligible for surgery. And again, with a median follow-up, you can see that the patients who are eligible for trimodal therapy, the black curve at the top are very similar to the radical cystectomy. And of course, patients who are deemed surgically non-eligible have higher mortality rate because probably they have overall higher comorbidities and things like that. So only uh, age uh, in the multivariate analysis remained uh, different in those that uh, uh, as a prognostic factor uh, among those that were eligible for radical cystectomy. This is another series of the memorial. Uh, about 150 patients uh, underwent uh, bladder preservation. Just note that this series, the Charleston comorbidity index median is seven, so it's pretty comorbid if you want to call this a uh, population. Most of the patients, a third, had incomplete TORBT, 20% had multifocal tumors and 20% had hydronephrosis. So this is, let's say, a, a, a bad actor's cohort in a, in a significant proportion. And nonetheless, the survival at five years was about 50%, which is comparable to some uh, surgical series with advanced disease. And again, the disease-specific mortality 31. So you see a bit of a gap between disease-specific mortality and overall survival, which usually you do not see in younger and fitter patients. And toxicity rate with very low rates of uh, grade three and four uh, toxicities. This is another very interesting translational study in which they did blood samples and urine samples right before uh, on, the, on the day of the radical cystectomy. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they were able to detect uh, cell-free DNA in the urine and also do a copy number variance analysis. Um, and you can see that those patients either that um, had no complete response by a presence of uh, cell-free DNA or presence of some, let's say, uh, pathognomonic uh, uh, gene variants that are seen on tumors um, are, have high rates of detection of those. So again, this is a potential for multiomics to uh, help guide bladder, bladder sparing approaches after neoadjuvant chemotherapy or, dual, or during follow-up. Again, this is a static 
ascertainment at the day of the radical cystectomy, and there's no dynamic assessment over time. But I think this is very interesting, and there's a, there's a, a lot of studies on this vein uh, popping up in the in the literature and abstracts related to this. And lastly, uh, long-term cost comparison. This is a study from the uh, University of Texas uh, that analyzed all medical expense, all Medicare expenses at two and five years after radical therapy, either um, trimodal therapy, which is the bars on the right, or, or surgery, the bars on the left, and then you have a two and a five years. One of the most interesting findings is that patients that underwent no therapy, the cost is about 88,000 at two years. So the no therapy does have a fairly steep cost. The cost of both therapies is steeper on the, it's front loaded on the two years and it's slightly higher, higher in, that, um, uh, in that setting for trimodal therapy than radical cystectomy around 250 and 350 Ks at two years and five years. Obviously there's uh, some issues with um, uh, insurance and so on and so forth that might not be applicable to our setting. But I think the most interesting finding here is that the absence of therapy is actually not cost-free obviously. And that has to be blended into the decision-making. So with that, I think a few of topics and food for thought. The summary is that there's good data that Trimodal therapy is a good op option with very good therapeutic index. And selected patients, I don't think is a handicap. Otherwise, we will be all be replaced by a robot someday. So a patient-centric approach now in 2022 should be collaborative among specialties. And patients should discuss with all members of the team before making any radical decision regarding treatment. Because uh, I think there are different alternatives with different pros and cons. Um, and with that, thank you very much. That's wonderful, Dr. Berlin, a very uh, thought-provoking uh, presentation, actually. So a lot of discussion over the years about TMT versus um, surgery for uh, localized high-risk bladder cancer. And uh, maybe we'll start with Dr. Pasuf. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, uh, on TMT? And uh, do you, uh, any comments on Dr. Ellis, uh, Dr. Berlin's presentation? Yeah, I mean, uh... To, to me, I mean, I see TMT as a complementary option uh, to surgery. They're not competitive options. I think uh, all these studies, including the one that was presented, they're really flawed with biases when you try to compare head to head. There's a lot of unconfounding factors that can happen. If you look at the studies in detail, uh, for example, 60% of the patients got neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the TMT group. And we do know when you get chemo, typically the good responders are channeled to TMT and the poor responders are channeled to cystectomy. So it does enrich the good patient profile in a TMT group and the poor patient profile in the cystectomy group, which probably explains why the survival was better with the TMT if you look at the curves. But I think, you know, having said that, I mean, I, I don't pay attention much to these all the comparative analysis because they're all, to me, they're flawed. I think the message is, Definitely, it's a good option in appropriately selected patient, as Ali was explaining to uh, explaining well. And the patients need to know kind of the the, the issues that come with with selecting each of the options because there's there's pros and cons. You know? I I would 100% agree with you. I think uh, it's always tough to figure out which patients would benefit from TMT versus uh, versus surgery. We have that own discussion at our centers as well at the MCCs. Speaking of the robot, Dali did talk about the robot taking over everything. There was a recent article in JAMA, I seem to recall, 
suggesting that robotic cystectomies uh, is better than the open cystectomy in terms of uh, most of the outcomes. Do you remember reading that article, Wes? I think it, it it seems to suggest there's no difference actually. So um, so a lot of the the tweets went on saying, well, listen, there's no difference while we're doing robotic, you know. And then the the caveat uh, the critic says, well, listen, if you're gonna open for a diversion, then you negated the whole ro- robotic approach. So the true comparison should be a full uh, cystectomy and intracorporeal diversion to an open cystectomy. But all the comparisons has been with a hybrid approach, which uh, may or may not um, uh, highlight the advantages, I guess, of a pure invasive technique. What are your thoughts on the robotic cystectomy? Do you think that's the, the way of the future for, for cystectomy or, or is it going to remain an open operation in Canada? I think it's a tool. I mean, we've, I've, I've done them for the last couple of years. I mean, definitely there's some uh, non-tangible benefits that you can see when you round up patients and you see them in their one-month post-op. They, they recover quite well when they're doing it intercorporeal. And they, they're up to getting adjuvant chemo if they, if, if they qualify for that uh, much easier. And the blood loss is less. But I think that the learning curve is, is high. So, uh, you know, open cystectomy at least currently is here to stay until uh, the learning curve becomes a bit more uh, palatable for the pure intercorporeal diversion. I think at the end of the day, is you know, it's whatever... Whatever surgery you do, if you do it well, you do it well robotically, you do it well open. Uh, to me, it's a, a, the, a, the critical thing. It's, you just have to get Namira and uh, Ali on the robot now. <laughs> Next up. <laughs> any, any final words? Uh, we're almost at time. We have a few more minutes. So there's no real questions in the chat that I see. Um, Namira, any comments you want to make about uh, any highlights from GeoASCO? Anything that was earth shattering for you? in the bladder side of things? Um, I think we're just moving forward. And, you know, previous years we've seen huge leaps and I think these are all steps in the right direction. I think we're getting more precise therapies. And, you know, I think with genomic testing for bladder cancer, that's new, we should be doing it. And hopefully this will increase access to other agents um, like ertafitinib, which we have access to, but no testing for. So I think the field needs to move in that direction. And I totally agree with what Wes and Wes and Dr. Berlin just said is that, you know, we should be discussing all of these patients. Patients need to know their options and not only in our tertiary care centers, but, you know, in our smaller cancer centers in rural areas, you know, that, that knowledge translation needs to get to all these patients that they may be a candidate for, uh, for trimodality treatment and, and give these patients their options. Super. Okay, we're going to take a five-minute break, and then we'll be back with the kidney cancer session. Dr. Berlin, Dr. Ali Mohammed, and Dr. Kasu, thank you very much for a fantastic uh, presentations and discussion. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thanks, you.